This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the website that helps you make websites. Andrew, what's the internet made of? Uh, bits and bites and puppy tails and spice and sugar and everything nice and everything bad. What if you wanted to tip the scales towards everything nice? You could make a website with Squarespace. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> Good luck. Well, Squarespace will give you everything you need except luck. Uh, with their beautiful templates created by world-class designers, free and secure hosting. There is nothing to patch or upgrade with a Squarespace website ever, and they've got award-winning customer support if you run into trouble. Our website is made on Squarespace, and we've used it for other websites as well. It's pretty good. If you're interested in making your corner of the internet nice, go to squarespace.com overdue for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code OVERDUE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace... What if the internet was made out of you? Oh, we got to get this train rolling. Okay, 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 okay. Here comes podcasts. Jump one, grab your bindle and let's jump in one of the freight cars. I wish I could make a harmonica noise. This is me on the train. Congratulations on your Mr. Rogers puppet noise. Maybe we need to... Welcome to Overdue, it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. Uh, My name is Andrew. And we're on the podcast train. We're riding, are you? I hate hate it when we're doing one that I don't think is working, but then you start the intro and then that's just... That's kind of how a train leaves the station. Like, you ever buy a ticket for a train and you're like, is this where I'm going? Guess Whether it is you're now. on board or not, the train is leaving. <laughs> That's true. And your only hope, if you uh, wish to remain here for the next hour, is to get on the train. Andrew, what is Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read? You might be surprised to learn that it's not a train, it's a podcast. <laughs> and every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before, tells the other person about it, and you get to listen to that conversation and usually like it, but sometimes hate it, depending yep. on who you are and what episode <laughs> you're listening to. <laughs> That is true. Um, Andrew, have you ever read Under the Skin by Michelle Faber? Boy, no, I haven't. I haven't. I try not to read any books about skin, just like going under it. <laughs> I prefer things to stay above like, the skin. There are skin. things that are supposed to be inside my skin, and that's where they belong. And then sure. There are outside skin things, and that's where they belong, and never the twain shall meet. You know? Okay, yes. Like, But like bones? Inside, except for teeth. Ligaments. Always inside. Arteries. Also always inside. Hair. Uh, It's important that some of it be inside. Inside your skin. Yeah, just like the the roots and whatever. I'm not talking about ingrown hairs, even okay. though I Ooh, watch an ingrown no, hair pulling out video. I don't. You want like, to talk about that? I don't like that. That's a part of who you are. <laughs> Let me. As a, I don't one like of it my either. Good but friends, I don't like that you like the pimples and the popping of them. Mm, yes, 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 yes. Because I, it's not a thing I can share with you. I just can't be in that space with you. 
So, okay, let's tip the ratio of podcasts from trains and pimple popping toward books. Yeah. What did okay. you read this week and why? I <laughs> and read how? the book I mentioned before, Under the Skin by Michelle Faber. Oh, yeah, right. Um, I have never read it before. And it was a Patreon suggestion from Greg. Thank you, Greg. Find out more about those at patreon.com slash overduepod. Greg said, uh, my suggestion would be Under the Skin by Michelle Faber. They made a really good movie out of it with Scarlett Johansson, but the movie is very different and doesn't really answer many questions. The book is very well written, but also explains everything the movie didn't. I think there's a lot to talk about in this book, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for the podcast. You guys are very entertaining. Thank you, Greg. Um, I remember seeing a trailer for this film at, mm, I wish I could remember what movie I was watching. It might've well, the, been, the film came out in 2013. So I don't know if that helps crown you at all. It might've been a, it might've been Grand Budapest Hotel. I saw it in the Let's theater look. where I saw Grand Budapest Hotel. Grand Budapest Hotel. Did come out in 2014, so that seems a little unlikely. Okay. Could have been a different movie. Same... Mm, I don't know. It was a weird trailer. Just it, making sure where the, when the movie came out. It was very... So 2013, yeah. Surreal right. and spooky, and it didn't really tell you what it was, and so I just kind of knew that there was this story out there. Wait, maybe it was Grand Budapest Hotel. Get your facts straight. Google and IMDb. <laughs> like Wikipedia says under the skin 2013 film. And then clearly Google says release date April 4th, 2014. So I don't know if it was released. Oh, it might have gotten in 2013 an as an Oscar bait thing. And then that's very possible. Widely, and then Grand Budapest Hotel was released in March 28, 2014. So it is possible that you saw the trailer when you saw the movie. I'm glad Grand we got Budapest to the bottom Hotel. of this mystery here. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it being a story. And so like, uh, it being a spooky, weird one, and so then when this came across our Patreon list, I was like, oh, I would like to read that at some point. We did read some Michelle Faber last year. We read The Crimson Petal and the White, which mm-hmm. is a different book. It's a different <laughs> book. <laughs> it is uh, set in like Victorian-era England. It's about sex workers and poverty and and it draws sort of dickens comparisons by necessity right yes it does this is not not about poverty and class and gender but there are it is it is a book about an alien and i guess like that's a spoiler sort of but we'll talk about how that works sure Um, when you selected this book did you imagine that you would be reading it as the chaser to the sonic the hedgehog movie novelization (laughs) no i didn't realize that the sonic the hedgehog book was going to cast such a long shadow over our reading schedule i feel like that's on you that's your mistake well that's yeah that's true i should have anticipated that um but no, I didn't think that this would be the book I would read right after reading Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, you never um, you never know how that's going to go. Any um, anything you want to say about Michelle Faber, Andrew, that we should talk about? So we I mean, we talked about him as an author in the the Crimson Petal episode that we did, which is episode 360 something, I want to say. <laughs> Have we done that many? That's so silly. I, it's ridiculous. Um <laughs> But this was his first novel published in 2000, um, shortlisted for the 2000 Whitbread Award. 
And uh, yeah, he had published a collection of short stories before this called Some Rain Must Fall, but this was his first like big book. Um, like you said, it became a film in 2013 directed by Jonathan Glazer, who you might remember from such films as Sexy Beast from the year 2000. And according to Wikipedia, Untitled Jonathan Glazer Project, which is due out this year. <laughs> Even oh, wow. It doesn't have a name yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah, it doesn't, I, my understanding is it doesn't, it doesn't have a ton to do with the book. Like, um, uh, Glazer finished another movie in like 2004 and then got a more direct adaptation of the, of Under the Skin in screenplay form, like after that. But, mm. and, and he like liked it, but it wasn't the movie he wanted to make. So he and some people spent like the better part of a decade rewriting it. And so the result is something that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the book at all. So, sure. The one or two quotes um, I saw from Faber, he seemed like into the movie, even though it was very different. I've got to imagine at that point that you're just like watching a very expensive fan fiction and you're just having a good time. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. That's true. Um, I think the the only thing. So this, I mean, having come out in 2000 and being his first novel, I f- it, it falls into a weird Internet memory hole where it's just a little too old and a little too early in his career for there to be a ton of like extant interviews and stuff. Sure, from sure. His, from any press tours or anything he would have he would have done for this. I think the only thing I wanted to um mention that we talked about last time is like Faber is like multiple countries can sort of oh, claim yeah. him as an author. He has influences that that reach all over Europe, like Scotland, uh the Netherlands, I think, and um also Australia, which Yes. Uh and he, he has a lot of influences in his writing. And then um his wife, uh, Ava, was an editor and consultant on all of his work, including Under the Skin, from like the late 80s when they met up until her death in, in 2014. So, Did you find that really good Guardian article? Um, which, the review of the book or the, like, the interview? With? The interview with him about Ava passing and like the poetry he was writing afterwards. Yeah, because he, he did a collection of poems in 2016, I think, yeah. about, his, about his wife passing yeah. away. And yeah, that's, that's a pretty, it's a, it's a tough read. It is. I'd say. It is. I, I found it really moving, um, you know, knowing, so he wrote Under the Skin and Crimson Petal and the White both center on like, on women and their experiences and you can see Faber in both works kind of working through that and trying to expand what must be his own experience as a dude um and you can knowing a bit more that like his wife was a big part of his work and he basically stopped writing novels after she passed like his last novel he was like I'm done because she's no longer here um and he has, I think, since gone on to work on a lot of short stories that she has written and try to get them published. It's just very moving, sure. and um, he is a guy who whose prose has a lot of like, not quite satire, but a lot of maybe cynicism and wry humor and critique in it. And so to read an interview with him where he's just like really opening up and being vulnerable is is compelling because it's like you can see that the stuff that could easily just be a guy like lashing out at the world or calling it meaningless is actually built on like a lot, a lot deeper emotion than that. Um, and, and he's capable of a lot, you know, a lot more care than you might expect from, from the work that you read. Okay. Um, um, but yeah, that's most of the author stuff. The only other 
I guess this gets a little bit into book discussion, yeah, but yeah, we don't yeah. need to we don't need to get all the way into it. Um but the impression that I got just from skimming Goodreads reviews, which has become one of my more favorite phases <laughs> of researching for one of these, um, is that the the book is really interesting and compellingly written, but it hinges on like a twist. And if you know what the twist is, which I think you already even said maybe what it was, which is that she's an alien, um, it kind of it take it, it subtracts from the impact a little bit. I, um, user Black Oxford in a three star review that he titled "Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Car" <laughs> says uh, more than a bit Octavia Butler ish, especially her blood child, combined with the social commentary of Upton Sinclair's "The Jungle." After the first clutch of hitchhikers meet their fate, I'd had enough, or perhaps I'm just jaded and closed minded when it comes to Scotland. And then uh, the Guardian review of the book really praised his prose and like sentence structure and most of the book but then said that the ending was kind of reaching a little bit for something larger than the rest of the story was able to support so I, yeah sure yeah. that's so i me. yeah so that's just like setting up your book with the book talk a little bit and seeing if you have anything to say before the break that can kind of i'll just say that i went stage. i went into this book knowing vaguely that there were aliens involved i knew that it was not just <laughs> a lady driving a car which is the opening premise and we'll talk about that so this is one of those books where i don't know i if someone picked this book randomly off a shelf and read it it would be a very different experience than the one that i had and like have a good time with it i guess like it, like were you were you expecting something that was all at all like crimson petal or had you no primed yourself for it to be different i was i had primed myself for it to be different and i had primed myself to be very curious as to how it would like how was this how was the crimson petal guy gonna pull off a alien story like is is what (laughs) i was excited about Sure, sure um and what i was most impressed by and we'll talk about this after the break is how he manages to it doesn't quite feel like a twist, but he delays a lot of information or otherwise obfuscates it so that it isn't just let me put you in another reality from page one. And that is that is very impressive and is probably part of the same skills that he put to work in, in Crimson Petal. Um, so I don't feel bad about spoiling the true nature of the book because in my experience I was like reading it waiting for the shoe to drop and I was impressed by how it dropped if that makes sense sure yeah and I I think as a show our our relationship to spoilers is that if that is all that your book is then maybe you should have did a better book yeah (laughs) when you wrote your book well and or or (laughs) i think we have protected maybe a little redundant no and i think we have been actually sometimes we get into a book and we're like we don't want to spoil a thing because that really is what the book is about and i think this book is about way more than how surprising it is sure i think it's just sometimes it is easier to talk about what happens in a book without talking about the twist like it's easier to talk about the themes and the events without talking about the twist and so if we can avoid spoiling it without hampering our discussion of it in any way then sure like let's give the folks who are reading along a chance to be surprised like everybody else is but 
Yeah, like it sounds like this one is not that way. It and sounds it also, like you kind of need to you need to talk about the twist to talk about the rest of it. And it also sounds like there might be plenty of people coming to this book having only seen or heard of the film, so like giving them a little runway into the book, which is a pretty rich experience, I think is is part of why we're here. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. I'm parched. Craig, do you know, have you heard about plaque? The things you put on walls to tell you where a building came from. No, the bad, nasty stuff that gets on your teeth. Gross! Yeah, and you know how it gets in there? It hitchhikes with food. <laughs> this is a de- There's a professional dentist in my home office right now, and he's telling me that that's how it works. Is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. Plaque comes into your mouth with food. It's hitching a ride, and it just gets in there, sticks on your teeth. That's nasty. I want it to go away. Well, lucky you. One of our sponsors this week is Quip. Quip Great. is a toothbrush making company that says if you have good habits, you are good. I think they're mostly talking about teeth brushing, but it could be applied more broadly to lots of things. Uh, but vis-a-vis tooth brushing, that means brushing for two minutes twice a day, flossing regularly. Quip makes that simple, starting with an electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and anti-cavity toothpaste. Get rid of that plaque. Kick them out. Quip's electric brush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. That's right. Listen to the pulses. They tell you how long you're supposed to clean each quadrant of your mouth. If you've never thought of your mouth in terms of quadrants, you're welcome. Now you'll never be able to think of it any other way. The Quip floss dispenser also comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough floss. Plus, Quip delivers fresh brush fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so your routine is always right. If you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash overdue, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue. Quip, the good habits company. Kick those hitchhikers out. Andrew, you ever hitchhiked? Uh, no, because I have not been murdered by anybody. <laughs> so I feel like the answer to that one should have been clear. Yeah, I've never hitchhiked either. Have you been on either side of a hitchhiking interaction? No. I feel like I've never owned a car. So my hmm. opportunities to let a hitchhiker in have been very minimal. Sure. I just, I feel like hitchhiking is to like 1950s fiction <laughs> what cell phones are to like 90s sitcom situations. Yes, correct. Oh, good. In yes. that if we if we brought a modern attitude to it, none of the stories would be possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, the open- I just I don't know what it took for us as a culture to be like. Maybe I shouldn't either get in a stranger's car or pick up strangers and let them into my car. I don't, that seems pretty common sense to me, but apparently that was not the vibe. Hey man, I guess when you think back to the fifties, the highways were all still new and they were everybody's road. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, we still had a pretty positive relationship with taxes, I guess, (laughs) and what they went to pay for. I don't know what this has to do with each other. I just think that, like, maybe, you know, you're out on the the road, you don't have a car, but, like, it's your road, too. 
maybe you just get to get in someone else's car and go along for the ride. Like, so I it's think, like it's like Ronald Reagan made everybody hate hitchhikers, is what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying, <laughs> okay, cool. which does not apply to Scotland in this book, um, which I presume takes place around the year 2000 when it is written. It's it's a little unclear. Um, it opens. Do people have iPods. No, there are no iPods. What about disc men? There are no disc men. There hmm. are cassette tapes in a car. Yeah. So it could, well, it could be a used car in the year 2000. Okay. Yes. Um, Does it mention those like cassette tape CD player magical plug-in things it does that let not you hook your disc man up to your cassette player nor okay. does it nor does it talk about what were they called mini discs Ooh, mini discs yeah like oh what if God. a cd but you could put fewer things on it and i knew working anything i knew one kid in high school who had a mini disc player in his car it was a sick like convertible he was mm-hmm. a rich kid and yeah it was those mini discs were worthless. No one else would use them. Um, so this book opens. Isterly drove Isterly, and is that's the name of the main character. Isterly always drove straight past a hitchhiker when she first saw him to give herself time to size him up. She was looking for big muscles, a hunk on legs. Puny, scrawny specimens were no use to her. I mean, same, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so Isserly's job, and you you learn this pretty early on in the book, is to drive around this highway in Scotland. Her um, job, y- yes, or just what she does. It both. Okay, cool. Um, most of her time in her life is spent driving around on these highways, picking up hitchhikers, dudes exclusively, and she does not want no puny scrawny specimens. Um. And she will usually like drive by a dude, see what his deal is, then drive past him the other way, see if he is as built as she thinks he is, and then she will like drive past him a third time and then pick him up. Um, she will then, and the the opening of the book gives you a couple of these scenes in a row, so I'm just kind of like giving us an aggregate of them. Um, she'll talk to them for a while in the car. Um, sometimes showing off her giant boobs to them. Cool, 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 cool. Mostly as a chance to be like, hey, dude, do you want to look at my boobs and like see what the reaction is? Um, and this is where you get a little bit of like Michelle Faber, just the human observer, where different guys will get into the car. And this is like stuff completely secondary to whether or not this is a book about aliens, but just like a dude who knows how to write about human nature. Um, The first guy we meet gets into the car and she's like, Hey, come on and get in. And instead of saying, thanks, he says, cheers, Uh, Mm -hmm. cheers. He said breezily as he swung into the passenger seat, just from that one word delivered without a smile, despite the smiley facial muscles involved, Isserly already knew something about him. He was the type who needed to swerve round the saying of thanks as if gratitude were a trap. In his world, <laughs> there was nothing Isserly could do for him that would put him in her debt. Everything was only natural. Ooh. There's lots of little things like that. And most of them, there are, I think, 10, 10 or 11 hitchhiker rides throughout the book interspersed. And most of them have little nuggets like that that make them compelling just as, as a piece of writing. 
Um, so she spends her time in the car with these dudes, like asking them questions, trying to get them talking about themselves. And she's mostly trying to ask Andrew, like whether or not they have strong social connections, like whether or not that's that's suspect. (laughs) Yeah, that's a red flag. Uh huh. And the second red flag after being willing to pick people up, uh strangers up in her car in the first place. Yes. Yes. And um, the book will occasionally jump into the hitchhiker's perspective. And so you you've already gotten uh, Isserly's like, oh, are these guys hunky? How are their muscles? Are do they look like a loner before she picks them up? And then you get the explicit male gaze right back where like the men are like, why are her boobs so big? I can't stop looking at them. Or I think they look fake. I don't like them. Or I was reading like synopses of this book. (laughs) That was the just the fact that all of it, like any of it spent so much time on what her boobs looked like. It's like, is this is this book going to be? horny or it is not horny no it is very not horny but it is um very aware of gaze and so like even when it's engaging in explicit male gaze stuff uh i think it's doing it in a way that is like almost a critique but at least like an exploration of it rather than an endorsement of it um because it's balanced out with her being like, look at these strapping dudes that I tra- I tripped, uh, I, I tricked into getting into my car. Um, and after she confirms that they have no strong social connections, she flips a switch uh, near her steering wheel, um, which pricks them with a needle and they pass out instantly. Um, and then she takes them back to her farm that she works at. Hmm. Um, and the first couple passages of this book go by without you getting much more information on what the gr- that like larger reality of the book is you just get that she is a person who has to do this she sometimes doesn't take them sometimes she's like nope this one's not right send him back and she just like kicks him out of the car um and then it usually for the first like third of the book is like cutting away from the actual what she does with the dudes when she decides she wants them. And if you've seen the movie, is my understanding that like her character in the movie is pretty much a loner and is operating on her own. And the book is very different in that it uh, is she's explicitly bringing these dudes home to a community of people on this farm in Scotland. What do you think she could be bringing these men home for, Andrew? I mean, to do an honest day's work on a farm and understand definitely the people who voted leave, <laughs> I think it's probably there is some proto Brexit. It's a, po- a political, <laughs> it's a political project. We're just reaching out to people who don't agree with us, Craig. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, who is the other in this book, and Isserly herself. Um, is very much like a, a capital O other point of view character. Um, but there are Scottish characters who are not really fond of other European people. That's weird. Wow. And, I could, why would that? Mm, weird. And blame them, blame them for the economic conditions at the time, which leads to so mm. many of the hitchhikers being like unemployed or underemployed, which are, of course, the easiest ones for Isserly to pick up. 
Um, being under or unemployed and having big muscles, you know, it, it's the, it takes work to have big muscles. I don't know if you've ever tried to have any size muscles other than regular size, but it is, it's some work. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, you have to pay for a gym membership, right? Like, yeah. How can you afford that if you're down on your luck? Yeah. Right. These are the things that I wake, I stay awake thinking about. Um, but she, no, Andrew, she's not putting them to work on a farm. She is uh, an alien from another planet, and the men get turned into human meat, into cattle. Well, Occam's razor, I suppose. It's yeah. on me for not guessing the most obvious <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, one of the things that the book does really well, and so this is like as close as you're going to get to a twist, like... For me, it was ne- there was never a part in the book where it was like, here's the twist, she's an alien. It was, what is actually going on here? Because for a good section of the book, she is bringing these dudes that she's captured back to the farm. Um, and she is also, there are people at the farm who like meet her and they're all men and they take the men out of her car and take them away. And then she just goes back to her cottage and like, her body hurts a lot. A bunch of cosmetic surgery has been done to her. The breasts are not real. They were implants. She doesn't like them. Her back has a big metal plate in it. Um, she's just v- very incredibly uncomfortable with herself and with her physical appearance. And it is sure. it, it goes a long way into the book before you find out why or how that came to be. Um, in the meantime, you're like getting introduced to the idea that she has been forced into this line of work. Um, there is one other alien on the farm who also looks like an earthling. Uh, and I'm going to shift my terminology here because the book surprisingly does this as well. Okay. Earthlings are referred to as homo sapiens sometimes or vodsels which I think is like the Dutch word for human or so, or meat or something, um, like voodsel or something like that. Uh, and the characters of Isserly's species are referred to as human beings. So the book does this like linguistic jujitsu where the point of view character and the alien race are quote-unquote human and all of the characters that you understand to be from your real world, quote unquote, in Scotland are just like animals. Okay. I get like encountering an alien race that had the same terminology for itself that we do. And then. Yeah. Don't think about yeah. it too much. You get a headache. Like it doesn't make no, as I'm much not... sense. I I completely understand what Faber is trying to do. I'm not. I don't want yes. to be like, well, actually, that yeah. would be statistically unlikely. <laughs> well, and like, where but, did they get the word human being from? Because it's clearly rooted in like earthling speech patterns. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't quite make sense. Um, but for the book to like be a thing that you and I, Andrew, humans can read or earthlings can read, excuse me, um, it has to use that terminology. But it, in, it does a thing where humanity as you and i understand it is not granted the same level of personhood as the aliens themselves like that is the goal i think that faber is trying to achieve um so she is like uh 
catching this human meat, and she has been disguised as... You can't... Okay, well, you can't say catching this human meat, because that's... <laughs> Excuse me. No, I used, the wrong, I used the word human wrong. Sorry, my bad. Well, I'm just... You can't just say that somebody is catching human meat, because it sounds very <laughs> dirty and... Sure. Also alien, I guess. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, so sh- the backstory that is revealed over the course of the book is that on her home planet, which has been ravaged by some sort of disaster where everybody lives underground, um, she is a lower class individual who, as like an escape option, was given this labor assignment on Earth where they used some experimental cosmetic surgery to describe to to disguise her as an earthling and now she goes out and hunts earthlings for meat which is a delicacy for the alien species and there's like a lot going on the the goodreads review that you mentioned that referenced Upton Sinclair's The Jungle is actually way more accurate than I was prepared. Yeah, I was I was wondering how that was going to come into it because Upton Sinclair's The Jungle is famously about like conditions at meatpacking plants. Uh-huh. So <laughs> Yeah, so it's a little ways into the book. Like the plot is pretty minimal for all things considered. For for a sci-fi book about aliens that are like hiding in our society, eating us after they pick us up while hitchhiking. It's a pretty slim volume. Um, But she's been doing this. She's getting tired of it. She's kind of like, spiritually, her tank is on empty. Um, And this basically Roman Roy-esque character from the capital, from the Vess Industries that is running this earthling meat trade shows up (laughs) and she knows he's coming, but she doesn't want to interact with him because he's of much higher class than her. And and it kind of stresses her out at this point in the book. You still do not know what the actual aliens look like. Okay. All you know is that she does not look like what she used to. It stresses her out and she's in physical pain due to the transformation okay um she meets this like corporate heir apparent jerk off okay cool 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 um whose name is omelis vest and omelet vest well maybe omelis vest okay so omelet vest omelet vest and before she even gets a chance to meet him he has like inspected this farm and released four vodsels. He has released four cattle earthlings. And she, along with one of her compatriots, has to go track them down. And you get you get a sense of kind of how gross it is for a human being to be kept this way. Mm-hmm. Um and so when he he releases like he releases them back into the wild like catching the release or he like releases them from this mortal coil he releases them from the farm so they start running away into the darkness trying to escape okay. now they are all like large men who have been pumped full of food like you might a cow and mm-hmm. they have their tongues have been cut out and they have been gelded and so they are just these like naked 
pink muscle men running through the woods for their lives. Uh-huh. And it's described in a way that is very gross. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it sounds... You just described it in a way that was pretty gross. <laughs> yes. And, and I think the... So what... They eventually end up having to kill all of them because they can't like capture them and bring them back. Um, and when you find out about what Vess is up to, he's basically like a PETA activist. Like he is anti vodsel meat, even though that's like his family's business. And he thinks that maybe they're more they're more like people than the aliens treat them as, and they should be you know, respected. Um, I was, I went deep on a Goodreads review that was like this. If you have friends who are vegan, who want some talking points, give them this book. And I was like, that seems a little (laughs) reductive. Um, But it does have a lot of uncomfortable imagery about like, if you ascribe any level of personhood to a creature, how could you treat it like this? Um, Which is after she has brought them home from in their, in her car but they are like trapped underground, fed a bunch of protein, and then killed for meat um, in a way that is really kind of gross. Well, that's v- for sure, like a PETA kind of... Yeah, yeah. And it's I'm not going to say that it's not a thorny question. Like, why do we, it why is a, we decided yeah. that some animals are pets and anthropomorphized and others are not? Correct. But, yeah. Well, and, and the problem here is this book... And it's not, I don't mean it's a problem with the book, but the problem that the book poses is that Vess is making this argument from a place of incredible uh, class privilege where all of the people who have been sent to Earth to work on this Vatsal farm are like lower class people. This is their only way to survive or else they're going to be condemned to these like underground oxygen mines or some nonsense. And how dare he show up and be like, well, I'm rich and I think this is bad. Uh, And that is like driven home over the course of the book that like, this is the only way that Israeli has to not hate her life. And she's also Mm -hmm. starting to hate it. Okay. Um, So again, it sounds like it would be pretty rough. Like you pick these boys up on the road and then you'd, I mean, you have to talk to them at least a little bit to find out all the stuff about whether anybody would miss them. And so you'd you'd get to know them a little bit. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the the thing that the book does really well is put Israeli in a place where she is no longer an alien, nor is she human because she has been like, you know. So when you finally meet the aliens, they are four legged. They're like quadruped canine llama people is my understanding <laughs> um like all of israeli's race uh vest stood naked on all fours his limbs exactly equal in length all of them equally nimble he also had a prehensile tail which if he needed his front hands free he could use as another limb to balance on tripod style his breast tapered seamlessly into a long neck on which his head was positioned like a trophy it came to three points his long spearheaded ears and his vulpine snout his large eyes were perfectly round positioned on the front of his face which was covered in soft fur like the rest of his body in all these things he was a normal standard issue human being which is again how the book kind of like drives home attention to yeah the human beingness of it um but so she has had 
like surgical work done to remove her tail, to change what her uh, genitalia are, to give her human-looking breast implants, which they based off a magazine, so they're bigger than any course, living human. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, to prevent her from ever like u- walking on four limbs ever again, and so she is like inherently an other. Uh, she is also surrounded by men on both the farm and the roads. So, like, yes, she is. It's tough for her because she doesn't. I don't know that she feels for the men that she's like picking up usually, but she also doesn't feel for the men that she's working for. Uh, and that is like, I think one of the things the book does really well is like paint her as a, a true loner and what it means to be that alienated, no pun intended, um, from all of the people around you. Um, yeah. And then it like, I don't know. It goes from there. There's like, I've talked a little bit about the grotesque violence. I've talked a little bit about how she functions as kind of sort of code switching between being a human and being a human um, and who she is as like a lower class person just trying to get by. Is there any like alien question stuff you have already, Andrew? I mean... I'm the physics of I'm just thinking about <laughs> cats, right? Oh, sure. Like any any kind of quadruped sort yes. of animal that relies on having a tail for balance. I'm just thinking about what a what a lift that would be to make it so they could not walk on four legs and did not need their tail for balance. That like that would be that would be quite a series of procedures. It sounds like yes, and she does not remember all of them. Um, can't imagine why she's probably heavily anesthetized um but she also spends long sections of the book like she needs to do exercises every morning to get her muscles like used to her new posture um she comments a lot on how she needs to sleep in a bed like a vodsel because she can't curl up like a alien on the ground Like your natural, think about how cats like to sleep. Like they naturally like to lay on the floor. They curl up on the corner of a couch, that kind of thing. And she can't do that. She actually has to sleep in a bed, which makes her even more like a Vatsal, which alienates her. Um, And she carries that pain with her every day also. There's an an element of body horror to this that I guess I wasn't expecting. Like I'm thinking about, I guess Star Trek aliens where Mm, mm -hmm. everybody is close enough to (laughs) humanoid (laughs) that if somebody is sort of masquerading as another like species, it is a relatively simple cosmetic surgery. There's, there's like the most, the closest to this, I think there's a plot line in Star Trek discovery season one where a Klingon character has been surgically modified to present as human. And oh. some of that is a little gruesome, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I wasn't expecting the juxtaposition of we think of ourselves as human beings and we are dog llamas. Yep. Is hitting me kind of weird, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> sure. It also gives Faber 
it's like by making Isserly a constructed version of an earthling, he gets to comment on, you know, obliquely on plastic surgery and the way that we, uh, you know, as a culture, you know, what standards we set for women's bodies and things like that. Um, and then he gets to like come at that sideways by also commenting a lot on the men's bodies in the book. Uh, too but he's also doing it with like yeah they're also aliens and so they kind of messed it up and this woman is like really screwed by having to live this way and no one else has any frame of reference for how she is experiencing this which also gets at some like gender stuff throughout the book like the way that it leverages you know predatory behavior and like folds it back in on itself, but doesn't ultimately give her all of the power in the story so that it's sure. still a reminder that that is still a problem. I guess I just, is there any, is there any suggestion in the book of the technology that these folks are Great using question. to travel from planet to planet? Cause I can't, I cannot help but wonder if one, there is a planet where the life forms are more like the you know quote human beings and so less body horror is required to <laughs> fulfill the mission or if that is true but some people have to come and, and do this more extreme version of the thing because of their position in society or, or what the what the deal is it is a it is one of the things that faber is the least interested in that's too um, bad for him because <laughs> that's what I'm most interested in. Uh, after I had like finished the book, maybe I think probably the next morning, I started thinking about like, wait, why didn't they know more about people? So there's a pivotal. This this gets to the technology question. the The ship that arrives midway through the book that carries our uh, corporate heir apparent. Um, is really underexplained as a ship. It just is the thing that they use to transmit the Vatsal meat back to their home planet. Um, they have a subterranean facility underneath their farm, but it does not appear to be super technologically advanced. They have ovens in the floor, if you find that technologically advanced. So like you the like the drawer is on the floor and you open it up instead of being kind of sticking out from the wall. Yeah. Well, imagine if you're walking around on all fours all the time, it's actually easier to not have to shift your weight to interact with the world horizontally. I guess you just, just pull like up be, on stuff. It'd be harder to get anything out of there without burning yourself, even if you do walk on all fours. And that's a good point. That's a good point. He doesn't really get into the. Me- to the physics of how the oven works or the chemistry. It's really, see, um, come on, man. But so, so he really doesn't explore uh, how or why the, the aliens like found earth or anything like that. There is some, some background discussion of the fact that the aliens home planet was really borked um, probably due to like nuclear stuff or something. Yeah, It's always like you can, tell when a book was written 
based on whether it's nuclear stuff or climate stuff when you have like a vague it's apocalypse level event it seems like they caused it but who knows and they they all live underground and even the rich people who live on the surface can't go outside so there's a lot made of the fact that when they do come to this planet wow you could walk right outside holy crap water just falls from the sky and there's like snow and stuff and that to me those parts were like wow that's really interesting on a on a thematic level of of their experience but also like what kind of science do they have they can go through space but they're like amazed by snow or like they can go through space but some of them aren't sure that the Vatsels are people like can't they get TV in space like isn't that how all the <laughs> cartoons work like you send old episodes of TV out into space um there's a pivotal seen about two-thirds of the way through the book where Vess takes Isserly underground and is like, hey, I was inspecting these Vatsal and it seems like maybe they have language. And she's never been down there before. It really wigs her out. And uh, one of them like takes a stick and tries to draw the word mercy in the dirt. And Vess doesn't know what it means and he's like is that a is that a Vatsal word for anything and she's like nah they don't have language stop it and she only says that because it's like really an uncomfortable situation she knows that it's a word um, but she tells herself in the end Vatsals couldn't do any of the things that really defined a human being they couldn't see will they couldn't mesh until they had no concept of slan in their brutishness <laughs> They've they'd never evolved. Man, I just hate it when people don't have any concept of slan. They'd never evolved to use hunshur. Their communities were so rudimentary that hisistans did not exist. Nor did these creatures seem to need seem to see any need for chael or even chael sin. And the book doesn't give you much more explanation of the otherness than that. Except every once in a while, this is the most concentrated dose of it. But like something in Israeli's brain will start referencing words that clearly mean nothing. They clearly mean nothing to an, to an earthling. And that is like the dividing, like un, unbreachable wall between us and their culture. Um, so it's a, it's a little linguistic trick that Faber does to get around some like space world building and just say like, yo, these people think of themselves as incredibly different than us and are unwilling to or uninterested in bridging the gap. Um, they look at us like we look at cows. Like, that's the point of my book. Um, and yet, they also have the same problems with capitalism that we have here on Earth. <laughs> yes, well, it's a <laughs> universal scourge, I guess. Yeah. So I would made a couple notes along lines of your question. I'm glad we were able to get to them because I... The best case argument for why they don't have more information on Earthlings is that maybe because they're like resource strapped, they haven't done as much like research, and the rich people are really just in it for the meat. Um, Same. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess I, I ask the technology question because when done poorly, advanced technology portrayed in fiction can be like trekno babble yeah, crap where you're yeah. just talking about like polarizing the deflector dish to 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 get rid of the photons <laughs> and make the alien anomaly go away like it, it yes uh-huh 
it, at its worst, you're using it as a deus ex machina to explain something away. At its best, you're using it to extrapolate something about technology that we would recognize or, I don't know, make a, some other kind of, of comment. And it doesn't sound like... He's done neither, which is kind of impressive, I think. Like I mean, he... there, There's a whole other genre where you, just, where you have an other in fiction and you have them use words that, from context, the reader can can pick up you know it means something and sometimes even you can pick up part of what the meaning is but it's mostly just like look how alien these people are i don't know what slon is wow yes, yes. he, he so is so different he has used alienness not to like come up with a technology that you know will say something about our daily lives but as a a way to introduce a hierarchy above us and just explore what that might mean for behavior and like what behaviors would will we recognize and which won't we um there is a bunch of class and like xenophobic stuff even among the men that she picks up which i think knits together a lot of the alien material with the hitchhiker dude material where I think as I alluded to earlier, it's like there's concerns about why certain industries aren't as healthy as they used to be and who is moving into Scotland and taking different property, um, who is at one point there's a dude who used to train dogs for rich people. And I guess as rich people got less rich, they couldn't have as many trained dogs. And now he's out of work and he's really mad about it, which speaks a little bit to the like keeping earthlings as pets and cattle stuff that the aliens are dealing it's just like there's lots of layers in this one lots of layers of skin in this one if you think about it lots of layers of skin to get under you know um the the fr- the title phrase is used twice in the book Nice. Um, you know, you know, this is my favorite part of any fictional thing. The it is used it's when you use the title, especially in a movie, but in a book is fine too. Characters say we are the same under the skin. And I think Vess uses it at one point. Um, the hot wolf boy uses it as a way to talk about the Vodsels perhaps being the same as the aliens, and Isserly uses it at, at one point talking to Vess, being like are we like poor people not the same as you rich people and don't we deserve the same chances because the the closing conundrum of the book is that wow this really is working out as a business huh maybe some other people will be willing to get turned into like cosmetic surgery women and come do this work so that if if this is not interesting to you, there will be people who can replace you. You are not, like, indispensable, which is one of the, like, true crises of, of a nothing-but-capitalist society. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the closing of the book is she endures a really traumatic experience with one hitchhiker, uh, really sends her for a loop, and then by the end she is being sent out to like maybe pick up a woman, and who knows what they're gonna do with that, and she decides to bail, um, and you don't it it kind of it ends not well for her, um, and I don't really know. I wonder how the movie ends. Um, I did not look that up. It for the book, it just kind of like. Maybe she'll get release by just not having to do it anymore. 
and be part of something bigger, maybe? But it... I don't know. I did not find the ending, like, nearly as moving or engaging as the actual, like, meat of the book, no pun intended. Yeah, no, that seemed to be the consensus view that I found was that the the journey was more interesting than the destination. And, and really interesting. There's lots of stuff along the way, like, even snippets of... She picks up most of her, like, understanding of Earthling language from, like, watching TV rather than reading the books they gave her. Um so she has like holes in her understanding of culture, but she does have a really good command of idiom. Um, and so the scenes where she's like watching television are really fascinating because Faber gets to like put stuff that you sort of might recognize on TV, like sports, but she doesn't know what sports are. Like it's mm-hmm. it's little little stuff like that. Um, and then he also gets if you are a fan of like Scottish Twitter, there's lots of fun like written scottish in this book like there's a dude who is like supposed to meet his wife somewhere and that's why he's hitchhiking and he keeps saying she's gonna scalp my butt and it's written scalp my bot over and over he just says it like 20 times and at one point one guy just says lord love a duck as like an exclamation lord love a duck lord love a duck i'm late uh so yeah it's a it's i dug this book um I was again going back to the to the original twist. I was I don't know if there's a book that you can think of Andrew that does this. I was just really impressed with a book that had a twist but rather than being like bam turn the page here it is, it was clear that something was coming for about 100 pages and it was skillfully giving me little nuggets. Like Yeah, like I I am I'm thinking mostly of books and, and this, this happens for me more often in TV shows, I think, but like yeah. it creates an atmosphere where I am uncomfortable. Yes. And I know that something is uncomfortable, something uncomfortable is coming because the, the show or the book or whatever is, is telling me, but I don't know what it is. And it makes me read or <laughs> like watch like with more attentiveness because I just want the thing that's making me feel bad to like stop <laughs> and clear itself up. Yeah. 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 Um, it does. It does that a lot in this book. Yeah. And, and just the way that it, it treats, I guess if it, if I were to connect this book to Crimson Petal and the white, even more explicitly, I think it's just in an understanding of how people relate to their own bodies. Like in that book, a lot of, the you know folks who were doing sex work and women who didn't have any other way forward other than to get married or have a kid or something like that were very aware of their own physical existence and that is a a huge theme of this book um so i i think faber has a particular empathy for for how we are satisfied or unsatisfied with our own physical existence and like how we use that to define ourselves um yeah, and then meanwhile you can like read some funny Scottish stuff in the book. Um, I did find a good, if overly academic, essay by a dude named Patrick Rogers, um, maybe on his own website. I don't even know. Um, called "Ideas and Identity" in Michelle Faber's "Under the Skin." If you want to look that up, that's a pretty good synthesis. If you read this book and you're like, "What did I just read?" and the overdue guys didn't help, like that's a good essay. <laughs> 
How I, would we not have helped? I, that's, I found it pretty uh, useful in terms of being like, okay, yes, that is what I read. That is what I was thinking. Um, that and it and he connects it to some other kind of tropes in contemporary sci-fi. So check that out, um, Andrew. If you were going to hitchhike anywhere, where would you hitchhike to, though? But really, where would I hitchhike to? I mean, somewhere far enough away to feel like an adventure, but close enough to not feel super uncomfortable. I don't know. Like once once you. Once you have to wrangle multiple people getting like picking you up, it yeah. feels like too much to me. Okay. Yeah, you want like one ride. I feel like I would like go up to Scranton, <laughs> Pennsylvania and back like just to see if I could. Yo, let's do and it. And also to see also to see anything up there that's about the office US, you know? Yeah, it's a popular that's show. A good television series. We could even watch it on Netflix on the way up. Yo, that's a that's a thing in that hitchhikers car. didn't used to have. Which you could be on the side of the road and be like, "I got Netflix on this," and just like hold up your phone. That's you see, you went to offering your driver Netflix, and I went to okay. Thanks for driving. I'm just gonna be over here watching my <laughs> stories for a minute. Hey. I went to the place where like I'm gonna be in your car, but I am not going to impose upon you so you so you just called a lift you didn't go (laughs) yeah but like a free lift (laughs) on a highway yeah all right i buy that um that's all i got yeah that's all i also have all right well let's hitchhike on out of here if you the listener at home have thoughts about how tasty vodzel meat might be hit us up at overduepod at gmail.com or twitter.com and facebook.com slash overdue pod. Thanks to Juliana, Allison, Nee, Megan, Andy, Joyce, Mary, Kirsty, Carlos, and many more. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed, our Facebook and Twitter pages, which you just mentioned. We have a page uh, for new listeners with uh, episodes that we like. That if you're trying to get somebody into the show or if you're trying to get into the show yourself, we think are pretty good. Uh, we also have a link to our Patreon project, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Get uh, bonus episodes a little bit early, including our current long read project, Hellboys, where we read the Divine Comedy by that guy, Dante. That guy. A bit at a time over the course of like a year-ish. <laughs> uh, Andrew, what are you reading for next week? That's a good question, Craig. I am going to read Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett. I already read a Discworld book. I read The Color of Magic a while back, and I thought it was fine, but then a lot of people were like, really, if this is the Discworld book you're going to start with, you should maybe consider starting with another one. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm going to do that. This This came up with our listeners and also on some threads about the best Discworld book to start with as a good starter one. So I'm going to try and get into it the way that fans have recommended and we'll see how it goes. Sounds good to me. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And until we pick you up next week, try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>